moving down the, the trophic chain, as we say, the, the, the chain of eating will, uh, will inevitably increase efficiency and overall production. It's just that people like uh, that hamburgers are tastier than a pile of beans. Uh, beans are pretty good, but then they contribute to global warming through the methane problem. Uh, yes, but less than cows. So you fart less than a cow. Oh, ha Welcome to What the If. I am Philip Shane, a documentary filmmaker, auteur of sorts. And I'm here with another, with an author, <laughs> <laughs> Professor Matthew Stanley of New York University, author of Einstein's War. And the subtitle is how relativity triumphed over the vicious nationalism of World War One. Impressive. For a while, we were going to have it as uh, the the gentle nationalism of World War One, but that just didn't work. <laughs> the gentle nationalism, such a simpler time. That's right. <laughs> the, the happy, cuddly kind of exactly nationalism. Exactly. The foxholes were you had you served tea at three o'clock, and well, actually, you know the. the the uh, the German trenches during World War One were famous for like having running water and electricity and like bookstores and things. It was amazing. Really? Yeah, because like the like the British trenches were total disasters. You know, they're always collapsing and you're knee deep in mud. And once the once they started advancing and they got to the uh, the German trenches, they were like, "What is going on here? Oh, <laughs> it's man. all clean and warm." And and you know, they're the Germans. That's impressive. Well, I would see. I would have thought the British too that they would have had, they would have had tea and things like that. But uh, well, of course, they always have tea. It's just a question of whether they're sitting in mud while drinking it. Right. That's true. That's true. That's true. Why does Jerry have all the nice? <laughs> Jerry's trenches are cozy. We uh, we're going to jump right in. Well, first of all, let me just explain. We haven't sort of touched on it in a little while. This is a game show. Mm -hmm. So, for those who are new, how so? What kind of game? Um, our game is that we we shape reality to fit our whims. Yes. Uh, yeah. So we changed something about the universe or the planet or us and then we uh we run with it and try to figure out what what the, what the implications of that are and hopefully we learn something along the way and is it just a free-for-all can we just make up anything well we try to we try to change a little something uh as as little as possible uh, and then see what comes from that so we change we we give ourselves one if mm-hmm and everything else is scientific. We, we, we lock, we, we open the door to fantasy. Mm -hmm. We make a change and then we shut the door. And now science is back and we see all the ramifications of that. If that makes no sense to you, you're in the same state of mind I am. It will become more <laughs> clear as we go. A very special idea. We, we, uh, often, 
get our ideas from you, listeners. You can send them in if you have an idea for an if. You can be ifed. If your idea is chosen, you become a super ifer. You can go to our website, whattheif.com, and click contact. You can hit us up on Twitter, what the if show, or on Facebook, what the if page. If we choose your idea, if you get raised to super if, if super ifer level, you will receive a very special gift of a finger puppet, 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 a very prized. I was going to say weapon. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Weapon of knowledge, weapon of humor from the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, and another very special gift from artist Thomas Romer of the Chop Shop Store. More about those later. Let's get right to it. Our special, our idea this week comes to us from a very special listener, Marsha Curley. Marsha Curley of Boynton Beach, Florida. I think we have to do as they would do on NBC News or any other journalistic enterprise. Have to give full disclosure, Marsha Curley is my mother. So... That's scandalous. Yeah, don't tell the FCC. Uh, (laughs) They'll revoke our podcast license. (laughs) Truth be told, she confessed that she sent in this idea hoping we would choose it, not because she is my mother, and she would be proud to hear her son uh, elucidate uh, this idea in scientific form, but because she really wants a finger puppet. So we are going to make that happen. It's a it's a very bel- uh, belated Mother's Day gift. Yeah. And here is the idea. What the if? People stopped eating meat. The world over. Mmm. Delicious meat. A delicious, delicious what if? Yeah. Or not. Yeah, depending on how it goes. Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. So, Professor, what if people stopped eating meat? Do we have any idea how... how, Why is is that a question of interest? Like, is it that meat, eating meat, has a large effect on the Earth? Yeah, well, it's got a large effect on lots of things, actually. So, I guess the the first thing would be its effect on us. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're omnivores, okay? We'll, we'll eat just about anything. Right. Uh, and you can tell it by looking at our teeth, if you're so inclined. Ah. We've got the, the, the sharp teeth in the front for ripping and tearing into whatever critter has the misfortune of falling into our hands. Huh. And then we've got the flat teeth on the back for grinding up plants. Oh, that's interesting. So that's different than, say... A full-on carnivore will have essentially just the pointy teeth, and a full-on herbivore will have just the flat teeth. Oh, wow. I never knew that. That's quite interesting. So it, it's vegetarian in the back and party up front. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so this is how, for instance, we know what dinosaurs ate. is just by looking at their skeletons, you can tell uh, whether they were herbivores or carnivores. And they were... Well, it is somewhere, somewhere each, right? Yeah. So the the good old Triceratops, 
has those nice flat teeth, so we know that it was a, a plant muncher. Whereas we know the T-Rex was a terrifying carnivore because it has those big pointy teeth. Interesting. And sharks have just pointy teeth? Just pointy teeth, right? No vegetarian sharks out there. So otherwise, Jaws would have been a really not very scary movie. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you were a plant. Yeah, sorry. So the, the fact that we've got both suggests that early in our evolution, we were probably scavenger type critters. We would grab plants that we could eat, but then when we found the corpse of something, we would eat that too. And then as we got better at building and using tools, then it became possible to hunt because we're not, we're not hunters biologically, right? We're not particularly fast. We're not particularly strong. Our teeth are good for eating, but not really for taking down prey. But then we discovered that meat was delicious ah. and, uh, and that this was something worth sort of working for and, and getting. So it's been suggested that early hunting was a huge driver for things like social evolution and cooperation. Because since we're crappy hunters naturally, we have to come up with other strategies for making for making hunting work. So tools is one, but then teamwork is another. So if there's a whole group of us, we can take down a mastodon and feast. So a little bit like ants in that way. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and then, of course, meat's a fantastic source of protein and nutrition. So anthropologists have suggested that having ready access to meat was an important part of physical evolution as well. That is, if we're going to build large bodies and large brains, you need to have a reliable source of, of protein too. So meat was probably important for that. You, you basically just described the first 15 or minutes or so of 2001, A Space Odyssey, that's right, as I, I try to do that in every conversation when I can. Yeah. Where we see the early humans, sometimes we, it, people who watch the movie call them apes, they're really not apes, they're mm -hmm. what we might call cavemen, early humans, and they are eating, there's a drought, and they're eating, they're very hungry, and it begins with them eating berries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then they see a tiger who might hunt them down, and so they are afraid, and they hide in a cave. And that tiger, I'm guessing, that is not an herbivore. That is a total carnivore. That's a big old carnivore, yeah. Later, one of them learns to use a bone to clobber some sort of warthog, and then uh, off we go. So, mm -hmm. But this is interesting. I didn't realize what you really put a lot of things together. So also, we know that it was the opposable thumb that allowed us to use tools, right? Um, it would certainly, uh, thumbs are very nice. I mean, you could probably make an argument that you could use some tools without them. True. But uh, certainly if you're wielding a spear or something like that, a thumb is a very nice thing to have. Being able to use the tool then allowed us to eat meat, which mm -hmm. I guess had a major effect on maybe boosting the power of the brain and the body. Yeah. And right. then also created this working together thing this social this has a tremendous amount of 
massive implications from just that's right there's an enormous things um associated with that and i should say you know anthropologists argue over relative importance of these different factors but i think everyone would agree that once humans uh, figured out a way to get meat when they wanted it the, the, there were enormous implications social and physical and so on now i've always wondered i'm not sure if you know when did the idea of not eating meat come about? Because certainly in those early days, they didn't, well, I don't even know if they had language or whatever, but like these proto-humans, cavemen, early humans, they didn't, there was no debate. Should we eat? No, no, that's right. This is, um, yeah, nowadays we have the luxury of deciding not to eat something. But for most of, you know, the history of life on Earth, everyone was just scraping by. Right. The idea of a surplus of food was a, a, a crazy thing to think about. And that, and that essentially becomes possible with the development of agriculture and domestication of animals. Uh, after, you know, this is, this is all in the, the haze of prehistory, so it's, uh, it's hard to date some of these things. But certainly tens of thousands of years ago, we discovered that not only could we kill other animals and eat them, but we could also capture them and breed them, and then eat them whenever we wanted. Yeah, that must have been an amazing day. Right? (laughs) We're like, yeah, that'd be great. And there's all sorts of, you know, downstream effects from this. So, for instance, one of the, the, the reason humans first domesticate horses is not for labor or transportation. It's for eating. Oh, really? Right? Horses are delicious. And it's only after we'd been eating them for a few thousand years that somebody was like, you know, I'll bet I could ride one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. And and I would say your 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 statement that horses are delicious comes from something you read. Um, Or have you actually does it taste like chicken? I have, if I have eaten horse, I am not aware of it. Okay. <laughs> but it is entirely possible because in my travels, I have eaten an unidentified meat given to me by people with whom I did not share a language on a couple of occasions. All right. Um, so, so I would not be surprised. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah. And it's actually, it's kind of an interesting thing to, to ponder that. Horses, which began their relationship with us as dinner, and nowadays we're horrified at the thought of eating them. They've they've had a complete change in the way they interact with human beings. At least in in, in our culture. In our culture, yeah, there may that's be right. Although, although one little side note, since we uh, we can get a plug in for your book, Einstein's <laughs> War, it, in situations where people are desperate, as in Berlin during World War I, where they were starving, people yep. have, they would eat horse, the horses. That's right. Yeah. So in Einstein's neighborhood in Berlin during World War I, uh, horses were butchered in the streets and people ate them. So, yeah, I guess a lot of the veneer of civilization is that way, right? As soon as things get tough, we, we forget about some of our things. But the, the question you asked a, a moment ago, this uh, the question of when the idea of not eating meat comes up. So you need to have a big surplus of food first. And then once you have a surplus of food, then you can start 
picking and choosing, choosing and making rules about what foods can be eaten and what can't. So probably the, the, the sort, this sort of thing that's most familiar to our listeners would be, say, um, Jewish kosher laws. Certainly so to my mother. <laughs> we here we're kosher. So that's um so you know in the the Hebrew Bible you get these rules about what foods can be eaten and what can't. So that clearly marks the the era of that text as being from this post surplus era in which you can say no I'm not going to eat a camel. Oh right okay. right. And to be clear, kosher kosher doesn't is not a vegetarian thing, but it says you can only eat certain kinds of meat. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Um, so and the, and the rules, you know, there's kind of a flowchart that that tells you, you know, in Leviticus that tells you whether or not you can eat a particular thing. And you know, camels. So, so the the if I remember right, the rule is if it's cloven hoofed, you can eat it. So that's why. So cow is okay, but mm. pig is not because their trotters aren't cloven. And camels are ca- called out as a specific example because they look like they're cloven, but they're actually not. Huh? Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah so you got to be got to be careful. It actually it so says something about don't be fooled. Yeah, I can't remember the exactly how the text goes, but yes, it's called out. Like, watch out, right? Clearly, so clearly, people had made this mistake at some point. And then vegetarianism as a thing, at least in South Asia was was a practice two and a half thousand three thousand years ago also which one more thing about kosher i remember that uh another aspect of it is that the, the meat you can eat the animals that you can eat have to be killed in a certain way a, a way that they considered ethical <laughs> yeah that's right right and it's often a uh, cleanliness thing too uh-huh. right uh-huh. so it's uh, i mean it's a it's a it's a religious r- purity ritual but it has clear practical benefits as well right but also the, the idea that i think that the animal shouldn't suffer the, the night yes, has to which be is super, nice right right so this is the first time i guess people are thinking even in that way at least that we know of right in terms yeah, of, that we should rough, treat right? the animals with some sort of yeah one hopes right so, like I said, in South Asia, uh, vegetarianism is a thing. So, early Buddhists try to be vegetarians, but they're, but Buddhist monks have as a rule that they'll eat whatever they're given, right? Because they just depend on donations. So, and in fact, um, the Buddha, like the original Buddha, dies because he eats some bad pork. Really? Gives him. Yeah. To which well, I mentioned this to the story to a friend of mine who was a rabbi, and he said, "See, if the Buddha had kept kosher, he'd still be alive." That's right. <laughs> now, now, do we know if that is a historical fact? It's always difficult to nail down what counts as historical fact in these sort of circumstances. And so, a, a heuristic that I find helpful is um, the uh, uh, the rule of em- how embarrassing the story is. That is, the more embarrassing the story about the historical figure, the more likely it is to be true. Because nobody, no one would make up a story about their great religious leader dying from eating bad pork. So, 
That's why I'm pretty confident. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it, it, they didn't create a rule then after that that you can't eat pork, is that right? They did not, which is very interesting, right? Yeah. So, so, uh, so one of the things, for instance, so if you're giving up on meat at that era, you need to have another source of protein that can, that can kind of make up for that deficit in your diet. So in South India, that was the cow, or South Asia in India, that was the cow. So you could get um, milk and cheese as a, a, a replacement for that protein. So this is one of the reasons, for instance, that the cow becomes a sacred animal in Hinduism, ah. is that it provides that food that you would otherwise only be able to get by inflicting suffering on animals. Hinduism is fantastically diverse. So there are Hindus that are totally uh, vegetarian. Um, there are Hindus that only eat certain kinds of meat, sort of kosher style as well. Um, so it varies a lot, I guess. And then you get the, 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 the real extreme cases like the Jains that you know, swear to not hurt any living thing whatsoever to the, the point at which they wear uh, masks over their mouth so they don't accidentally breathe in a bug. Wow, so that's way beyond vegan. Yeah, exactly. The Jains are extraordinary. And they're still around? People are doing that? Yeah, there's still Jains around. Now, there's a Jain temple in, here in New York somewhere. Amazing. They're pretty great. Wow. But, so let's hear. So, with meat, so meat is uh, great, I should say, right? For sort of the, <laughs> the early years of human civilization, it sort of keeps us alive. It lets us evolve in particular ways. It is tasty. It is still a precious commodity in the sense that even once you get domestication, you can't have as much meat as you want. It's still work, right? You have to set a, a limited resource. And then as we get better, as we as a sort of species get better at breeding animals and better at agriculture generally, meat becomes cheaper and cheaper. Okay. And then we get these important innovations of canning and refrigeration. Okay. So nowadays we take these for granted. But if you think, say, a thousand years ago, sort of late Middle Ages, you want to have some meat and you have a cow. So you slaughter the cow. And now you have 300 pounds of meat. Wow, I didn't know it was that much. What are you going to do with 300 pounds of meat? So that's going to go bad pretty fast. So that's going to be a major tailgate party. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I should say that's kind of the one of the solutions is you think of meat as a communal commodity. So you so you only slaughter a cow on say a feast day when the whole village will come and eat it. So then it doesn't get wasted. Um, otherwise, you have to come up with strategies like smoking or salting or turning it into jerky. And these are all fine, but they're all sort of small scale solutions. But once you get canning in the uh, sort of reliable canning in the 19th century, then you can do something like have a slaughterhouse in Iowa that sends meat to New York. So when you say canning, like the only time I think of meat in a can, I think of spam. Yeah, well, that's and that's of course spam is fantastic, yeah. right? That's one of the <laughs> greatest foods ever. Right. But do we do we can meat? Um, not as much as we used to, and I should say now we don't do it so much because now we have refrigeration, which does the same sort of thing. But once you get that, then you can have, for instance, large scale ranching 
like you get in the American West, uh, the Old West. So because it used to be that you had to have your meat animal near wherever you were going to eat it. Those were your only options. You know, they used to bring thousands of cows across the Hudson River every day to slaughter in New York City. Because so there, there are actually tunnels. There are cow tunnels under 10th Avenue where these cows used to come through so as not to arrest the traffic. I've heard of that. And yeah. you can still find some. Well, this is this I should say this is a, a a subject of some debate among urban explorers about whether or not these tunnels are still there or not. Uh, but it used to be you just had to bring the cow to wherever you wanted to eat it, and then you would slaughter it and you would eat it Amazing. right then. Amazing. But once you have refrigeration and trains, now you can raise the cow in Texas, slaughter it in Texas, freeze the meat, and then bring it to New York. So then you get this kind of scale the efficiencies of scale that were not possible ever before. So meat starts to become cheap. Right. So actually it, it becomes, it, it, the meat basically gets, as far as farming goes, it goes down into the category where vegetables and grain were. It's yeah. just another thing so, you can farm. It's just, that's right. It's a, a commodity, as we would say, right? There's nothing, nothing special about it anymore. So probably for the f late 19th century, for the first time in human history, I think I would feel safe saying, ordinary people could eat meat every day if they wanted. Mm. Yeah. So it used to be maybe once a week. You know, you remember people talking about the Sunday steak because that was the one day a week you, you ponied up the money for, for a piece of meat. So, and as with many things in our industrialized world, since the process, you know, the raising of the cow and the slaughtering is all distant from the people who actually consume it, we forget about all of the work and labor that goes into that process, and we just enjoy our Big Mac. Well, nobody enjoys a Big Mac. Uh, <laughs> we, we enjoy our, our Shake Shack burger. Yeah. Right. Well, I would say you, you can enjoy a Big Mac going down. It's half an hour later. <laughs> when you start to hate yourself. You may not enjoy the Big Mac quite as much. Yeah, and, and then and then so the notion of it so it sounds like uh it's three thousand years ago, maybe, or at least that's when we start to have records of people starting to think of the animals as let's say worthy of not being like of actually making the choice and perhaps making the choice for ethical reasons. Mm-hmm. At that time, they're certainly not thinking of the planet. No, definitely That's not. That's a recent. It's, uh, it's your it's your own soul kind uh -huh, of thing. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Right. It's definitely a a personal choice. I can't think of any large scale vegetarian movements that weren't sort of spiritual in character until quite recently. So modern vegetarianism starts in the late nineteenth century. And is part of it's it's actually kind of a weird consequence of the Darwinian revolution that as 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 the argument gets made that humans are just one more kind of animal and we are related to all those other mammals quite closely, there comes to be sort of an ethical movement that say it's not right to eat these things, huh. and it's often tied it's closely tied to um, uh, health movements as well, this kind of new, new dietary things. But this, um, 
yeah, so, so this late 19th century, that, that sort of modern vegetarianism takes off in the West anyway. Right. And also we should say that, that just because there are plenty of cultures throughout history who did and continue to, let's say, eat meat. For instance, I know that the, it isn't that they all, they just sort of were callous about it, right? For instance, I know Native Americans and I'm sure zillions of other uh, cultures around the world, they wouldn't they they say a prayer before they kill the animal or they would say a prayer before they eat it or you know they they treat oh, it as yeah, a special Oh yeah that's right this is uh, this is again something that we've lost at least in the 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 modern west is that virtually every culture has some kind of prayer or ritual before eating not necessarily meat but essentially everything right because back in the days when you were often one meal away from starving Every bite was incredibly precious, so you would thank whatever deity you were affiliated with uh, for that bite. You know, right. I mean, that's and that's and that again is that's uh, because we have so much food, we don't bother doing that anymore. But sometimes I think it might be nice to uh, to remember that, or even I do know in, in a sort of more uh, a less religious tone, there are people who. Uh, you know, might say something beforehand, even if it's not a religious prayer, but just say, rem- remember all the people that had to work so hard to bring us this yep. food, vegetables or not. Yep. You know, migrants, That's exactly right. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, the the farmers, the truckers that bring it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, uh, that was something I learned. I, I really appreciated from my time living in the Midwest was being sort of at the, the, the origin of the food sources. So... So nowadays we're, so by the 20th century, we're in this extraordinary place where human beings as a whole have enough food. And because we have enough food, we can start choosing the foods that we like to have over the ones we just have to have. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. And it be, with refrigeration and global shipping and railroads, it's possible to get foods from anywhere in the world, essentially any time you want. Okay. And that's so even things like, you know, the reason New Zealand is able was able to function as a colony was because they had refrigerated ships um, that could carry meat. So they just raise lots of sheep down there. That's what they do. But the reason they were able to move beyond being just subsistence colony was because they could sell that meat back in Britain. Ah, amazing. Which would take you know, months or something, right? Right, right. So you can specialize. Um, so so the, on, the, on the production end, you can get specialized societies, like, say, New Zealand, for producing meat. Right. And then on the consumer end, you get to eat whatever you want, right? It's no right. longer what animal you happen to have in your backyard, but you can just go to the store and get whatever you like. Now, the global, so global warming is real. It's interesting that now... Even just, you know, certainly the, the production of meat as an as a aspect of, of global warming has been around for a number of years. But because, <laughs> to excuse the pun, because the whole global warming conversation has heated up, there's a lot more discussion now about vegetarianism as a solution or partial solution for global warming. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So I should say we should we should make explicit the connection to global warming here. And uh, the connection is largely 
that you may want to, to cover your children's ears if they're listening. The connection is uh, farts. 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 So all of those cows from which we get our Big Macs uh, produce a lot of methane in the form of farts. And methane is a major greenhouse gas. Actually. So... And this is not a joke. This, this is, I swear this is not a this joke. Actually this is actually a scientific... Totally right. Like, it's a genuinely significant... Mm-hmm. It is a genuinely significant number. Yeah. Um, I mean, overwhelmingly, uh, greenhouse gases are carbon dioxide produced by industrial processes. Um, but the methane produced by industrial agriculture is a really significant factor. So I don't know the number off the top of my head. Uh, but, it's, uh, but it's a big deal. The significant number is how many farts per year? Per farts per year. Yep. That's right. Incredible. F- FPY. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's somewhere. Yeah. Industrial agriculture, that is the raising of specifically cows, but uh, as a general rule, the tastier the meat, the larger the animal, the more methane is produced, and the more resources have to go into that burger as well. So not just methane and global warming, but it takes an enormous amount of water, for instance, to create one hamburger. So, and then it takes, then you have to feed that cow. So that takes an enormous amount of food that could have gone to say feed humans. And then it takes an enormous amount of fertilizer to grow that food to feed the cow. And uh, fertilizer not only costs resources to make and transport, but produces all sorts of nasty uh, byproducts too. So, for instance, uh, extra phosphorus, and that that extra crud then gets ejected into the ecosystem as well. Uh-huh. So, and it's it really is kind of a a chain of awfulness. So, the the really tasty things, the the hamburgers, have this huge pile of water and soil and seed and wasted food and industrial byproducts that were all required to make it. And then the chicken burger takes a little less of each of those. You know, this is all per pound, right? And then because the the chicken requires less food than the cow does. And then if you're willing to just eat what the chicken would eat, then you don't have to waste all of that, all of those resources at all. So is it, is it, see, if, if, uh, uh, from a naive point of view, I'm, I would think that, well, yes, it requires all of these things to be put together. So the water and then the grain and then, but then the animal eats it. And so if I eat the animal, am I not getting all those things back? You are. So this is, so food chains uh, have what's called a, a trophic efficiency. I don't know if you'll ever be able to use that at a, at a cocktail party, but it's a great <laughs> phrase. Trophic. So at each each step in a food chain, you lose a little bit. There's there's an efficiency problem. So for the cow, you can think of it this way. So the sun generates energy, right? Light, and then. Let's uh, plants catch some of that light and turn it into food, 
right, into their their bodies. And let's call that, we'll, we'll make up some numbers here. We'll call that uh, 50% efficiency. And then the cow eats the plant. And because the cow can't perfectly metabolize the plant, right, it has to poop and fart out some of the plant. And then it also needs some of that energy to keep itself keep itself alive. Let's say it is 50% efficient. So now we've got two stages, right? And then you eat the cow, but you don't eat every part of the cow. And, you know, it takes energy on your part to slaughter it. So let's call that 50% efficiency. So even, and I should say those numbers are really generous. So even with really generous numbers and only three stages, we're down to one-eighth the original energy that we had. So by no means am I getting out everything that, like, you can imagine the, the little the little picture of the little fish eaten by the bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, 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 bigger fish. You can eat that biggest fish. You're not getting all those. It's not as if you could eat all those fishes. That it <laughs> exactly, is. right. Yeah. So being high on the food chain is fantastically inefficient in terms of sort of ecosystem energy. And this is why why there aren't many tigers out there waiting to eat you because the ecosystem just can't take it. That is adding one more tiger to an ecosystem requires an enormous number of prey animals to be added to the ecosystem and therefore an enormous number of plants for those prey animals to eat as well. So our industrial abilities with uh, industrial processing of agriculture and food completely threw the thing out of whack. Totally threw it out of whack. Um, And that's good because that means we have delicious hamburgers to eat, but it's bad in that it requires an enormous amount of energy and then all the byproducts that come, come with the production of that energy. So there's lots of good, so it's been pointed out kind of within our generation that not eating meat is good not just for sort of religious reasons, but for large-scale social ones as well. That is, every hamburger you don't eat frees up a lot of food that humans could then eat and requires less energy to produce as well. So not only if you eat if you eat a cow, then you're saying that not only are you not getting anywhere near the enormous amount of resources were wasted or lost, basically, in, in bringing you that cow, but you have also kept other people from eating. Yes, that would be. And, and, and it so happens that the nature of our current civilization is, you know, we in the West don't always interact with the people who are suffering because of the choices we make. And these things, and I should say, these processes are often indirect. When I buy a hamburger, that very slightly drives up the cost of uh, grain because there's now more... When I eat the hamburger, there's more demand for beef, so there's more demand for cows. More demand for cows means more cow feed. Uh, Needing more cow feed means grain, the price of grain goes up very slightly. So there's somebody in Bangladesh whose price of bread went up ever so slightly because I ate a hamburger. Whoa. Did you follow all that? Yeah, yeah. Or I was even thinking also that there's an extent that uh, 
this this means there's something wrong with the system anyway if you have to provide aid, international aid. But for instance, I know that you know the United Nations will bring vast the huge supplies of grain or food to places, you know, to, to feed people where there's a famine or something like that, but they are not bringing, uh, cows. Yeah. I'm guessing right. they're bringing, <laughs> you know, those, those people have to eat mm-hmm. the bottom of the food chain. So there's, so I think there's, um, you know, there, there's sort of this deep sense that we we right now are living at this very strange, very privileged phase of history where it's possible to eat high on the food chain without total collapse. But 200 years ago, that wasn't true. And I suspect in 200 years, that also won't be true. So if kind of if we want to last as a planetary civilization we have to start eating lower on the food chain and and there's like i said there's the 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 number of consequences that come along with meat are huge so it's it's economic it's the ability to feed more human beings it's uh, ecological stability right The, the amount of damage that we inflict on the ecosystem from eating meat is gigantic and then uh global warming right it's funny how the hamburger touches on so many aspects of what makes our planet function. So if we cut out the cow farts, yeah. will that actually would just, I mean, there's obviously a lot of other stuff that went on, like you said, in, in the food process production. But uh, if we cut out the cow farts, that actually would make a significant dent in the heating of the planet? That would make a significant dent in the heating of the planet. Yep. Wow. Uh, I'd, I'd have to do a back-of-the-envelope calculation, but I would certainly wager that it would be on the order of converting to electric cars. Wow. Which we would still need to do too. Which we would still need to do as well. Right. And this is this is part of the this is one of the problems with climate change as a whole is that there is no single solution, right? Everything right. has to change. Right. It has to we have to change what we eat, we have to change how we drive, we have to everything. Change what you fart. Change your fart. That's <laughs> For instance. Yeah, that's a major so so if everybody stopped eating meat. Now, here's another question I would have. In my mind, you then have to replace that meat with enormous amounts of of vegetables and grain, Mm -hmm. fruit. Is the production of those, would those, would the production of those things have to increase greatly? And would that bring back some problems? It would have to increase greatly. It probably would bring along its own problems, but those would all be much less than the problems we get from meat today. Huh. Uh-huh. So moving down the moving down the the trophic chain, as we say, the the, the chain of eating will uh, will inevitably increase efficiency and overall production. Okay, it's just that people like uh, that hamburgers are tastier than a pile of beans. Uh, beans are pretty good, but then they contribute to global warming through the methane problem. Uh, yes, but less than cows. So you fart less than a cow. Oh, ha-ha! <laughs> Should anyone ever ask you? I'm going to put that on my resume. Farts less than a cow. <laughs> farts less than a cow. <laughs> and actually, you know, and we may be at sort of a tipping point for this right now. I don't know if you've heard about the Impossible Burger yet. Yeah, I don't know about that specific one, right? But I know that, for instance, yeah. is it Sergey Brin, one of the guys from Google... Started working. A number of people are working on synthetic burgers. 
synthetic meats. Synthetic meat. And so, and this is, uh, this has kind of been on the horizon for a while, but there is now a commercially viable meat substitute, you know, made entirely from plants hmm. that apparently looks and tastes and eats like meat. Hmm. It's called the Impossible Burger, and it's going to be in Burger King soon, apparently. Oh, wow. So I have well, that's not a low bar. Yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's as good as a whopper. Well, this was a friend of mine pointed this out to me is that that's actually a really good place to start because even their burgers don't really taste like meat. Yeah, I was going to say McDonald's is it, you know, who, who knows? Um, but this is one of these things that, you know, if you can get a massive supplier like a fast food chain to to buy into this production system, then that's that's an enormous step forward. Yeah. And also just culturally, it makes it more acceptable. It's like, look. Exactly, right? Because everyone's you can, eating them. Yeah. If you can get a veggie burger, a good veggie burger at a drive-thru, then it becomes normalized. Yeah. And now, forgetting profits and stuff, you know, what the restaurant might actually charge, is the production of that significantly less expensive? Or is that something it, that will take time? I assume that will take time, right? Because yeah. we have we have a hundred years of infra- infrastructure set up to get cheap meat to your table, yeah. and we will need to either co-opt that infrastructure or come up with new systems for the vegetarian version. So, answering the original if if people stop eating meat, it sounds like there's no downside whatsoever except disappointment <laughs> for some people <laughs> yeah well that's right as as with many healthy choices in one's life that's what it comes down to right it's yeah. it's all great except for that slight in <laughs> slight patina <laughs> of disappointment you know, like, uh, yeah, I know exercising makes me feel better and I'll live longer but I'm just a little sad that I'm achy today yeah. Well, hopefully what'll happen is with this uh these impossible burgers is they'll all, you know, they'll be full of sugar and, you know, I don't know, whatever else other things. So it'll be just as unhealthy. Well, actually, I think this is apparently one of the features of the impossible burger is that in order to make it uh as tasty as meat, it actually has to be equally unhealthy. But it's better for the planet. But it is better for the planet. Yeah. And if it reduces the human population, who am I to say that's a bad thing? <laughs> that would be fine. Well, this is... So it's a good question. And uh, no doubt those of us who do eat and enjoy the flesh of animals, mm-hmm. it's a tough thing. And so you can see also if you're logical-minded and you're scientifically-minded hearing all these facts, none of this has anything to do with guilting or... you know. It's just, yeah, exactly right. It's not just ethics question or being a better person kind of thing it's a it's a large-scale planetary survival question but as we talked about we're the turning down the opportunity to eat meat is kind of flying in the face of a hundred thousand years of human evolution and that's not easy to fight yeah we 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 know at some deep genetic cultural level that meat sort of made us who we are and giving that up is hard and so aside from synthetic burgers sort of last question it, it, i'm sure vegetarians would say yeah duh of course you can but can you you can by eating vegetarian 
actually get all, you can be absolutely as healthy, in fact, even more absolutely. healthy. Yep. There's, there's actually biologically no reason for us to eat meat. That's correct. It's just that in the past, it gave us a boost that we didn't have. It was just a really nice concentrated chunk of protein. But you can get that from tofu. So really, the main benefit in, the, in ancient times was that it, for them to grow, in other words, maybe they didn't even have agriculture, they didn't have farms and things like that yet, so they couldn't get the resources together to create healthy vegetarian meals every night for the entire city right. or village. Not, not so possible. by killing meat, killing meat was a necessity. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, we flip that over and it's no longer a necessity and therefore it really is not biologically necessary whatsoever. Right. Yeah, there's no there's no biological or social reason for us to eat meat anymore other than just we like it. And it's a yeah. it's traditional. Yeah. yeah. Now I have to say having seen I love Morrissey, mm-hmm. the uh rock performer. Uh amazing. he's amazing. He's amazing. But having seen anyone who knows if have you ever been to a Morrissey concert? I have not. Okay. So he he is a vegetarian and uh, a, a really, you know, militant one. In the middle of his concerts, he shows a long movie, sort of like video clips of all these, you know, his slogan, meat is murder, and there are all these bloody, bloody, bloody clips of animals being slaughtered. Uh, And there he's trying to, you know, go for the visceral, I appreciate it. He's just going for a gut, you know, reaction of grossness. So that's one attempt. That's one way <laughs> to go for it. But I must say that this this logical attack is another way. Yeah, and that's right. And I should say that's actually we didn't really mention is kind of the horrors of industrial farming. Yeah. In terms of that, you know, animals do suffer. Mm-hmm. No matter how much you enjoy your hamburger, there's no way around that. And it is often pointed out that traditional butchering practices, like, say, kosher butchering, you have this kind of intimate relationship with the animal that changes the way you think about the source of your food. But if you've, you know, I'm sure there are many residents in New York City who have never seen a cow but eat hamburgers. So one kind of stepping stone to a more sustainable lifestyle I've, I've, that I've heard advocated for is you should only eat meat uh, that comes from an animal that you raise and kill yourself. Huh? And that would both dramatically decrease the amount of meat people eat and also increase you know, this, this deeper sense of appreciation um, for where our food comes from. Now I have a very strange image. This is what we'll end on. What the if? We have a gym, for instance, in our apartment building. We also have a laundry room. I can imagine a third room, which is the slaughterhouse. The slaughterhouse? Yep, I think that would be great. Where we, we, we actually do have a little backyard. I can imagine they would raise animals back there. Mm-hmm. And then you would... Yeah. Bizarre, yeah, I mean, chickens, but... for, chickens, for instance, are very easy to raise in cramped quarters. So everybody raises some chickens in their spare bedroom. Uh, and then they take them down to the, the butchery in the basement to prepare their food. I think that would be fantastic. Well, or, or just like you have, um, you know, you have like garbage chutes in the buildings sometimes, mm-hmm. right? In a little trash room, you just throw your trash in and it goes down a chute into a central place in the basement. I can imagine something for eggs, you know, that all the, every apartment has like an, an egg chute 
and uh, <laughs> and there's a guy there's omelet man down in the basement and you can have brunch every day just piles of broken eggs at the bottom of the chute why did we build it this way <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think this is this is looking up okay well thank you marcia curley of boynton beach florida for this question you will be receiving a finger puppet of perhaps a vegetarian scientist. I don't know. I'll have to look up and see mm, if there is All right. One. Yeah, we can find somebody. Yes. Yeah. Uh, or other historical figure, I suppose. Gandhi, I'm guessing, was a vegetarian. Yep. So, and you will be receiving... Oh, sorry. And the finger puppets, as many of our listeners know already, come from the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. Philosophersguild.com. They make smart, funny gifts for smart, funny people, all of which you are. Go to their site, you can check it out. By the way, you can get 10% off anything on their website. There are hilarious mugs and magnets and puppets of other, big puppets and small puppets and, and stuffed animals and all kinds of things, all about science and literature. If you use the coupon code WTIF, you need not wait to be ifed. You can just go ahead right now and get some of those funny gifts, which is great. Also, the amazing artist, graphic designer, Thomas Romer, has the Chop Shop Store, C-H-O-P-S-H-O-P-S-T-O-R-E.com. You can see his amazing, beautiful, beautiful uh, posters of uh, historical spacecraft, fun travel posters to visit the other planets, advertisements to visit other planets. Uh, also, I think T-shirts, all kinds of incredible stuff. He does work for the Planetary Society and for the SETI Institute. And he's offering stuff for our listeners, too. So if you get ift, Marsha Curley, you'll be receiving one of Thomas Romer's beautiful artworks. But you listeners, again, need not wait. You can get 15% off at chopshopstore.com off anything that Thomas makes. And they are gorgeous by the way he has a he's doing a kickstarter now with the planetary society making these uh, blocks kids play with uh, blocks but they are all about the solar system so like instead of a b c d there's like well i guess one for mercury one for earth and they have all these cool. beautiful statistics on them they're gorgeous he made them with emily lakdawalla of the planetary society so good stuff mm. thank you everybody i am hungry now as always because we record these at brunch but you know i have a a croissant is vegetarian right yeah yes but not vegan not vegan correct that's another thing is there a significant difference between how uh, eating vegan would affect the planet versus vegetarian Yes, it'll be less so. So even uh, even if you're not eating cows, you need them to make the butter that goes into your croissant. Ah. So you still need to, to feed them and keep them alive. So veganism is certainly better than vegetarianism. But really, it's about harm reduction, I think, at this point in our civilization. We've just got to make things better, not perfect. But the vegans could announce, you know, there could be a bumper sticker. It says, vegan, we make less farts. We make less farts, yeah. Uh, fart less eat vegan that's free you guys can run with that next week i have no idea who knows what's gonna happen matt stanley you have a book is is it is out now 
Yes. As of May 21st, it is out. You should should be findable at major sellers like Barnes & Noble. Fantastic. And your local independent bookstore? Hope so, yeah. Amazon. And in fact, well, if it's not in your local independent bookstore, ask them to order it. Order it up. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's something that people in the neighborhood want, for sure. I will do, by the way, I, they're often very good. This uh, There's a, a little bookstore here on our street, and they've been very good about having science books. But if they don't, I'll be asking them. Do Fantastic. You have Einstein's War. Hook me up, people. <laughs> Wonderful. And you. You're going to be appearing on some other shows. I know you're going to be on Dr. Kiki's This Week in Science coming up. Any other that yes, you, know, you know about? And I will also be on Coast to Coast AM, what? for those of you who are familiar with it. Uh, let's see here. What's... Art, Art Bell's old show? That's the one. Holy cow. I was a bit surprised myself. Who hosts it now? I cannot remember the guy's name yeah. off the top of my head. Yeah. But it is, uh, it is still around. That yeah, is a, watch our Twitter for the details. That is an achievement unlocked. Coast to coast, what, in my mind, I think of as the UFO show. Yep, okay. That is fantastic. Wow. Yeah, assuming I survive the process, of course. Yeah. Oh, you will. You may be abducted, but you'll just be reporting. You'll, your next book is, will be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> coast to coast, planet to planet. All right, sir. Next week, who knows? What will happen? We may be shouting the name of the show into a fart-free atmosphere. That would be nice. Imagine. Imagine the power, the clarity, the freshness when we say... (laughs) What what the... the If, 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 if...